This is an Enlightenment Day celebration talk by Joel, titled, Three Fruits of Enlightenment, recorded August 8, 1999, at the Center for Sacred Sciences in Eugene, Oregon. So today we celebrate enlightenment, as Fred mentioned, and we really celebrating is the potential for all human beings to wake up. It is our birthright, it is inherent in our form just by virtue of the fact we are human beings. And we have to choose Sunday, and this day is the closest Sunday to the date of my own awakening, which was August 13th, 1983. But really, we're not celebrating my enlightenment. One of the reasons we're not celebrating my enlightenment is there's no such thing as my enlightenment. One of the uh, definitions of enlightenment is to realize there is no one there to be enlightened. There is no one there to be in bondage. There was no one there to begin with. And that is what liberation means. It's liberation from the delusion of being a self. Uh, normally, I don't talk about my enlightenment for a number of reasons. The first reason is that actually nothing has happened since that day. And so people are always curious about, well, what's it like to live, to be enlightened and all that? Well, it isn't like anything, and nothing has changed at one level. And the next reason is, this is impossible, really, to communicate in words. And so uh, it's very, very difficult to talk about in any sort of way. But I know people are curious, certainly on my spiritual path, I was dying of curiosity. So traditionally, on Enlightenment Day, I'll try to speak personally and try to answer any questions that you have. So I thought this morning I would talk about three fruits of enlightenment. Freedom, bliss, and beauty. Freedom, bliss, and beauty. So let's talk about freedom first. Freedom has two aspects. Freedom from and freedom to. Freedom from something and then the freedom to perform, if you like. And the freedom from is really freedom from three burdens. At least they were always burdens to me. I didn't know they were burdens until afterwards. And looking back, I realized that they were burdens. So let me just uh, talk a little bit about this. This is the easiest part to talk about. First of all, freedom from knowing. Freedom from knowing. Now, this sounds kind of strange, but what realization brings is a certainty that everything you think you know is imaginary. That it is impossible to know anything truly through any of our ordinary ways of knowing. Basically, through thinking, ideas, concepts, or even through experience as we normally think of experience as being some I in here experiencing something out there. And speaking for myself, all my life, one of the things that motivated me, that drove me was, I wanted to know what this world was about. I wanted to know what I was doing here. I wanted to know uh, how things worked, how people worked, how societies worked. I was always looking for that secret, that trick, that key, that if I could only figure this out, understand this, then all my confusion would be cleared up. 
And so in various stages or phases of my life, I became enamored of various forms of knowing. Uh, when I was uh, a teenager, I got quite interested in philosophy and so forth. I thought, oh, eventually you can figure all this out through philosophy. And then later I became a communist. And this was a real eye-opener to me. When I started reading Marx after coming back from Vietnam and uh, the class analysis and how society works, I thought I really found it. This is the key. This is it. It's very, very seductive. He writes so clearly and logically. And I became a, quite a committed uh, Marxist uh, for a number of years. And then finally, I uh, realized that this was not true. Not that all of Marx's writing is uh, useless. Some of the class analysis is kind of useful, actually. But his dream of a, a proletarian revolution that would bring about the utopian society just wasn't going to happen. And then I got quite cynical, and I went to Hollywood, and I started trying to make a lot of money and become rich and successful. And again, though, I was interested in how all this worked. First of all, I got interested in sociobiology, if any of you know anything about that, that everything is reducible to the genes, basically. And I started reading African Genesis. Anybody remember that book? Anyway, the whole idea was we were aggressor apes. The first thing that distinguished us from the rest of the apes is we made weapons and killed and so forth. So this was a good philosophy for somebody going to Hollywood, believe me. <laughs> and it fit right in. And then I wanted to know, you know, how money worked and how people got rich. And so then I got interested in psychology. I thought, this is really the key now. If I can figure out what makes people tick, then I'll really know what's going on, including myself. I was always a mystery to myself here. But all these ways of knowing, all this attempt to know, to understand, I discovered as part of enlightenment is all false in the sense that it cannot really tell you about reality. And in fact, your belief that what you know is real is the veil. And this applies particularly to your most fundamental assumptions assumptions like I'm a physical organism and I'm here and this gong is out here. Just things that I never questioned, just took for granted. It's not true. It's not true. Our ideas, our minds construct a world and project it onto appearances and then that is the world we live in. And that world shifts, as I just described in my own case. So when I was a communist, I lived in a very different world than when I was in Hollywood. And they shift because our ideas shift and our ideas determine how all this is going to appear. This happens at a such a fundamental level, we don't normally even realize it's going on. And the best example, I was trying to think of a, a, an analogy or an example, is if, if you've ever meditated, or maybe you even haven't been meditating, but you've been staring at a pattern carpet, and you start to see faces in it. Has that ever happened to you? <laughs> or maybe you see faces in clouds. The carpet's really good, especially if you're a meditator, because you don't really want to see them. They get very distracting. These faces come. And... They appear. Now, this is something that's obvious to us our minds are doing. We know there are no faces in that carpet. But it's not something we can control. 
I mean, you can look away and you can somewhat, you know, try to get away from it or you, you lift your gaze and uh, then another face pops in, you know. This kind of projection is happening at that level. And it's not a bad analogy. And in fact, that is not just an analogy, but that is a little uh, a bit of the spectrum of what is going on all the time. We are projecting what's coming out of our minds onto these appearances. And so they appear that way. Now, there's nothing wrong with that. In fact, that is what the mind is supposed to do. The mind is supposed to construct ways of correlating all these events that are going on. Our problem is that we believe that this is true. And once you see that not only is it not true, it cannot be true, then you are reduced to total ignorance. Then you find you know nothing. You will never know anything. You give up that striving to know. And in that space of total ignorance, then all ideas can arise and pass without being grabbed onto as this is true and this is false. Ideas can be, in a relative sense, true or false in relation to some world, some paradigm. So in a uh, scientific world, it's not true that people change into um, wolves. But in a Native American world, it is true people do that. In a scientific uh, world, it's not true that jinns run around and do things. In a Muslim world, it is true. I was talking to Abdullah about that. You go to a little village in Saudi Arabia, and yes, there are jinns. Genies, we call them, you know, the genie in the bottle. Actually, jinns is that? Yeah, but it's not like the Hollywood represents. No, that's what I mean. <laughs> but there are other beings that operate in the world. Right, yes. another spirit without Right. It doesn't exist in the scientific world. Now, normally, you see, we think, well, those are superstitious villagers. That's not true. But our world is true. It's not a question of true or false. Then the second thing is to be free of the burden of willing or self-will or choosing. And I used to think that I could become happy if only I could get my way. And in fact, a large part of the reason I wanted to know how the world worked was so I could manipulate it and get my way. So if my will could be done, then I would be happy. And of course, most of the time, uh, my will was frustrated. And so it's a constant battle to arrange my life the way I wanted it to be. And then you're faced with choices. And then this is where the knowledge part comes in because, boy, if you don't know what's going on, you might make the wrong decision. So choosing and deciding becomes a big problem. You're not quite sure whether you're choosing based on reality or not or how it's going to turn out. Am I making the right decision? All this burden, all this suffering. But what comes with realization is knowing there is no one in there choosing anything from the get-go. I never chose anything. This universe is not made up of lots of wills all competing. And mystics have various ways of describing how or why things happen. The Buddhists uh, like to talk about the spontaneity of all this arising, the natural radiance of mind. 
Most of the other traditions will talk about it in terms of God's will. Everything is happening by God's will. Or in uh, the Taoist tradition, they talk about it as it's just the movement of the Tao. It's all one unfolding movement. So there's no agent in here. What a relief this one is. This is really a great relief. Doesn't mean decisions don't happen. But you can watch in your own life. It's, it's very interesting to watch how decisions happen and to see if you can find really anybody making these decisions. They do just happen. Sometimes they happen with preparation. You know, as the mind is hired to go out and gather information and it starts weighing them and suddenly, boom, one side of the scale drops and a decision's made. When you think that it's something that you're doing that's going to affect your happiness, that process gets very confused because often the scale drops, but then wait a minute, the thought comes in, but maybe that's not right, and then the scales start going again, and it's very hard to make decisions. When you realize it's like a leaf falling from a tree, it's no big deal. The biggest problem I have with decision-making right now is that it is expected of me far more than it is actually naturally happening. So Jennifer, for instance, has constantly asked me, well, you decide, what do you want to do? You want to go to the movies? You want to go to dinner? Or in the video store, which movie do you want to see? I don't know. It doesn't matter. It doesn't really make any difference. It's not an indifference, but how are you going to decide what movie you want to see? <laughs> Once in a while, there's something that uh, comes out. You know, uh, when I was a kid, I used to love uh, sword fighting movies, big costume dramas. So if a movie's out that's uh, like Queen Elizabeth, that was a good one recently. I want to go see that on a big screen because I, it's designed for a big screen. You look at a you know, little tube and you're going to miss a lot of the quality of it and so forth. But this just comes out of conditioning. You know, it's just because I was in Hollywood and I know about these things. And when I was a kid, I liked these sword fighting movies and all that. I find I have to manufacture things. I used to be constantly pulling out a coin, saying, well, let's flip a coin, and we'll see. And that, that's a little cumbersome. So when Jennifer presses me, I'll say, yes, this is what I want to do. You know, just to make our life run more smoothly. <laughs> <laughs> really, uh, what this uh, amounts to is a realization of total powerlessness. What a relief not to feel that you have some little power and you have to get your piece of the action in and all that. You just give it up. What difference does it make? So if I wanted to use an analogy to speak about what this form feels like, it's like a flute. I'm not a musician, but I picked a simple little instrument and I was inspired by Rumi. He talks about a reed, but it's like a flute that someone else is playing. So you are the flute. So lots of things are happening in a certain sense. Tunes are being played. Thoughts are going on, emotions going on and so forth. But it's something that is being played. Not that you're doing it. And to really be a flute and to know you're a flute means you don't object to what tunes are being played. The flute does not object to the musician Playing sometimes a sad tune, sometimes a happy tune, sometimes a fast tune, sometimes a slow tune. The flute has no conflict about that. 
Sometimes no tune is being played, just silence. Luke doesn't mind. So it may sound terrible to be powerless, but actually, if you can see what it might be like to be a flute, how free, how wonderful. The third burden is the burden of seeking. Freedom from seeking. This is a little bit harder to describe, but it has to do with the other two, knowing and power. I always had a, or was looking for the story of my life. Trying to find my destiny. What was I supposed to be doing in the world? If I could only find my true destiny, I'd be Whether this was a career or finding your soulmate or whatever it is, where you're supposed to end up. And at different times in my life, I had different stories, but they all turned out to be false. Or not false is not quite the right word here. They all turned out to be stories. One of the most uh, sharpest, vivid, was when I was a communist. Oh, I was uh, a warrior in the proletarian revolution. <laughs> and that was great. History had meaning. I was contributing to the inevitable development of history. I was on the right side against those dirty capitalists who were on the wrong side, fortunately. You have to be on the right side when you find your story, of course. You'd never want a story that you're on the wrong side. <laughs> but in any case, this whole business of seeking, seeking to find happiness in the future, in what is going to happen, what is going to unfold, seeking to become something, to arrive somewhere, to become a great filmmaker, Oh, when I went to Hollywood, I, I loved Fellini. That's originally way back I got interested in movies because I saw Fellini. I thought, oh, this is art. This is what I'm going to do. I went to Hollywood with the idea I was going to be the American Fellini. I would eventually arrive, and then, of course, I'd be happy. I never met anybody in Hollywood who ever arrived, by the way. Or who was happy. Hmm? Or who was happy. Well, that's what I mean. <laughs> in fact, I will tell you one a story that illustrates how seductive this is. I once had a friend at, at that time, she was um, a very uh, successful and famous actress. You know, her fame didn't last more than about five years, but she was right at the height of her fame. And so everybody knew her. And so we'd walk down the street and people would be like this. And I began to think, is my fly open? What's going on here? And then I realized, oh, well, you're with, you know, I'll call her Mary, right? So I started asking her about this. Oh, and she would always put on a, a, a kerchief and wear sunglasses and stuff, you know, and, and always look down. <clears throat> and I said, doesn't this bother you? I mean, you can't go anywhere. People are just staring and staring. And she said, well, of course it bothers me. But she said, you know, but if I wasn't famous and people weren't looking at me all the time, I wouldn't know I was worth anything. Mm. Which is very telling. At least she had the psychological honesty to know what was going on. You never get to that place. And then you have arrived. It's a little myth, a total dream. So this freedom from seeking comes from the realization you're already happy. This moment itself is it. You don't have to go anywhere. The Sufis say, this cosmos is a divine self-disclosure. Every form that manifests is a form of the divine. The idea is that the divine, which is pure consciousness in our terms, is full of infinite possibilities of form. 
It itself is formless, but it has these infinite possibilities. And what the cosmos is, is the manifestation of all those infinite possibilities. What this means, though, is every moment is equally a divine self-disclosure. It's not going anywhere. It's not like we're going to get to the climax of it. This moment is equally as a divine self-disclosure as the last moment and as the next moment will be. A twig is equally a divine self-disclosure as a sunset. So there's no need to go from one thing to another or one moment to another. Do you follow? So suddenly no more seeking. And every day of my life that I could remember, all the way back to childhood, I would wake up and the primary, wouldn't be a conscious thought, but the, the primary driving force is, now what can I do to become happy? Seeking happiness. And that might be from, what should I have for breakfast? Going out there and, and my mother says, you want some oatmeal? And I say, no, I want the sugar jacks. Because there's a prize at the bottom <laughs> or something. And then all day long, you're faced with these decisions and then you have to have the knowledge, but it's this seeking to become happy if I make the right decision. For me, always, there's a, some idea that eventually I would get there. And it was always frustrating. I never got there. It was always a source of great suffering. But if there's nowhere to go, you're already here. You've already arrived. Oh, to be free of that burden. So those are the three burdens that you become free from. The free too, boy, this is a really hard one to talk about. It's the freedom to be in any world, any imaginary world. It's not getting rid of imaginary worlds, but once you realize all worlds are equally imaginary, then there's no ultimate reason to be in one as opposed to another. Then you're free to start moving through these worlds. And it's a great delight. And one example I came up with that sort of communicates this, when I worked at the Bodhi Tree Bookstore in Los Angeles, which I did for a year or so, a couple of years after my enlightenment, I would go through the various... Oh, the Bodhi Tree Bookstore is like the granddaddy of New Age bookstores. They're the first ones that served you the, the herbal teas and had this wonderful relaxed atmosphere and burned incense and had you know New Age music playing and whatnot. It was a marvelous place to work. One of the best jobs I ever had. The two owners were really dedicated to what they were doing at the service, and it set a tone for the store that was just wonderful. But there were different sections. There was a section for astrology. There was a section for Buddhism. There was a section for Hinduism. There was a section for Christianity. There was a section for psychology. There was a section for self-help books. There was a section for crystals, for auroras, aromas, uh, you know, you name it. There was a section. And then as a clerk, I would go with a stack of books and I'd be, you know, restacking the shelves or going through with customers and helping them find books and stuff like that. And I'd pass through these sections. And it was like passing through little worlds. You'd go to the astrology section and you'd overhear some people talking and you'd hear, well, they're having such problems, but you know, he's a Leo and she's a Sagittarius. Oh, well, no wonder. Is that, oh, yes, they should never have been. And plus, he has an Aquarius in the rising sign. Or I'm, you know, see what I know about astrology. 
<laughs> well, you see, they live in this world. And then you walk around a little bit, and then you get to the Buddhist section, right? And then, oh, she's having such problems. She's got uh, cancer and asthma. Oh, it must be bad karma. Yes, yes, she remembers something from a past life. That, ah, there's a whole other world, right? I mean, some of them were, you know, more strange to me, to what I'm used to. You go into the... Uh, the alien, they had a little section for aliens. And there was... Uh... But entering these worlds, it's not saying, oh, these people are nuts. That's a crazy world. That doesn't exist as though I live in some real world. I don't live any realer world than they do. I live in a conventional world. And most of the time, the world I live in is the conventional world you live in. When I say, when my car breaks down, I take it to a mechanic. I don't take it to a shaman. <laughs> Usually I go to a Western doctor when I get sick. You know, and I had my gallbladder thing. I went to the Western doctor. I'd be more tempted to go to a shaman in some cases, but not with a car, but maybe with some health things. But that's just a convention. It works. It's useful. It makes things easier. The roof leaks. I'm going to call a roofer. I could try and get some Tibetan to do a, a weather thing so I don't have you know bad weather for the rest of the summer or something like that. Again, it's not that one is true and the other isn't. That's the freedom, you see. I'm you know, making fun here a little bit, but I give you one other, two other examples of how this is significant. I worked at a paint factory a number of years ago, and... The person I became closest to there was a fundamentalist Christian, a dedicated fundamentalist Christian. They were all Christians, almost, at this paint factory, but most of them were Sunday Christians. They go, they pay lip service, and that was about it. This guy really wanted to live the gospel. And when he'd get angry at a fellow worker, he'd worry about it because Jesus said, don't get angry and stuff. And we started talking. We became good friends. Every break, we run out and we talk. And... I could enter into his world. Fortunately, I've read some, you know, Christian stuff. And we almost always stayed within his world. Occasionally, I would sort of lead him to a window to look out on, you know, something else. But I wouldn't have been able to talk to him if I had insisted Christianity isn't the only answer. There's Buddhism and there's this and that. He wasn't prepared to hear that in his world. We had wonderful, deep, true spiritual conversations so I could really enter into his world without a judgment about it, without thinking he's a superstitious fool or, or this or that. And I'll give you one other example at the deepest level. I've told a lot of you this before, but it is the clearest example I can think of, so it's worth repeating if some of you haven't heard it. At one time, I was studying shamanism. I mean, shaman, not, not going out and doing spirit journey practices, but reading about shamanic worlds and shamanic worldviews. And particularly, I was reading accounts of elder Native Americans uh, that were recorded during the 30s, and these are mostly Sioux, Oglala Sioux, Lakota. And so they had been alive before the reservations. They had been the last generation of free Lakota. And this uh, walker, his name was an amateur anthropologist. He, these guys were getting older in the 70s and 80s. He realized they were losing this great resource, so he just sat down with them for months and months and you know, recorded what life was like. And through this, it's not just what life was like, like, you know, oh, we hunted buffalo and uh, painted our teepees. It's like, you know, this is a different world these people live in. Uh, this is a world where human beings change into animals and back and so forth and so on. And 
so one day I was on retreat with a bunch of my students. We go up to uh, Cloud Mountains Buddhist Retreat Center in Washington. We go away for five or ten days. And I was standing uh, in the parking lot, and the dining room is built up a little bit on an embankment, and there's a deck. And there's a big tree, and at that time they had peacocks on the property. Peacocks can fly up to branches of trees and fly down. They can't, you know, just take off in the sky. They can get up and down. They're big, enormous birds. You know. And so I looked back and I saw three of my students on the deck, you know, overlooking the, the land. And I turned back and had another puff. And suddenly I heard, and these three peacocks swooped right down in front of me. And I knew they were my students. And I turned around and sure enough, my students were gone. <laughs> And that was it. Now, this was not a fantasy I was having. When I'm communicating, I, at that moment, was experiencing what it would be like to be in a shamanic world. I was just totally experiencing it. Mm -hmm. Now, I didn't stay in that world, because again, then my students would all run, you know, and they, they would call a psychiatrist or something. And they don't live in that world, so there's no point in staying in that world. But it's this freedom to enter different forms, to enter different worlds. You're not stuck in one world. And then it's the freedom to be in no worlds. And this is almost impossible to talk about. When the mind becomes quiet, when it ceases to project, there is no world. I don't mean necessarily everything's blank, although every night everyone experiences this in dreamless sleep. We're just not lucid. But the withdrawal of the projection of the construction of the world is to experience the suchness of everything, just as it is. There's no, it's not a world, it's not a separate world, it's not, there's no construction about it, it just is consciousness in form, and consciousness informing itself. This isn't, I go around all the time this way, it's just all I have to do is just sit quietly. Sometimes Jennifer comes out on the back porch and I'm like this, she says, Joel, what's the matter with you? You're weird. <laughs> I'm not weird. I'm just free not to be in the world. Worlds can get tiresome. You know, they get fatiguing. Let me put it that way. So just to relax and not be in any world. And then finally, the freedom to come and go. And again, this is just so hard to describe, but it is the freedom to come and go without any friction. Uh, the Buddhists talk about the, um, the lack of obstructions in awareness, sort of a formal analytic way of putting it. But the way that everything appears and disappears effortlessly, effortlessly, our sensations, sights, sounds, we have problems with them when we don't like them or we want to hang on to them and whatnot, but they're just happening, just happening totally effortlessly. Because all these forms are empty. There's no real solidity, substance behind them. They aren't things. And we aren't things. And so it's like space and light, maybe. And in fact, the first teaching that ever occurred to me, and it wasn't even meant as a teaching, about three or four days after my awakening, I was riding on a ferry uh, from Port Townsend to Whidbey Island. I'm riding in the ferry, I'm standing at the bow, and the sun is behind me, and the shadow of the ferry is racing across the water. 
The thought just occurs, oh, if anybody could really see that this is the way the whole world is, you'd understand instantly. The shadow races across the water without any friction because the shadow isn't anything. The shadow is the absence of something. It's so totally effortless. And this is how everything arises and passes away with this absolute total effortlessness, this transparency, this lightness. So that's the freedom. That's the easy part. Bliss. Two kinds of bliss. Informed or manifest bliss and formless bliss. And formless bliss is the most difficult to describe, and it's the most confusing because we tend to think of bliss as an emotion or even some sort of state, some sort of specific state. It is not a state and is not an emotion. And this gets quite confusing, uh, particularly in the Hindu tradition, uh, for those of you familiar with Hinduism, there the word is ananda, and they talk about ultimate reality. Uh, they describe it as sat ananda, that is being, bliss, and consciousness. But they also talk about bliss as being the last obstacle to enlightenment. So there are five sheaths that veil reality from us, and bliss is the last one, the last covering, the last veil. And they use the same word ananda in both cases. What they're talking about is the difference between manifest and unmanifest bliss. Unmanifest bliss is inherent in consciousness. It's not a particular state or a particular emotion. It's a kind of potentiality, you might say. Just a poetic analogy, it's like the stillness of a summer's eve. Especially, not so much up in this neck of the woods, but down south. The air is just like it's caressing you. I mean, it's just it's this warmth and the aroma, the perfume of the honeysuckle and stuff. And sometimes for about a, an hour or two in the evening, just as the sun's going down, just after it's down, the air is absolutely still. Absolutely still. And there's this stillness that you cannot see, you cannot touch, you cannot taste, but it's there. It's, it's palatable. But if you tried to say what it was, you couldn't. If you tried to point to it, you couldn't. You see what I'm kind of driving at here? That's what unmanifest bliss is like. There's nothing you can point to, not an emotion, not some, you know, something like Hare Krishna dancing in a state of bliss. It's just everywhere, all the time. We just don't notice it. Now, the unmanifest bliss also has in it the potentiality for manifest bliss, to be a state, to be an emotion. And we usually experience it as the appreciation or enjoyment of all this. Oh, I love that forest. I love the seashore. I love that music. I love that human being. I love that animal. It's that outpouring of our bliss that now is moving. Emotion means to move. And then it can be manifested in terms of compassion, which is the meeting of suffering. To be practicing compassion isn't to go around trying to generate feelings all the time. Compassion is not that. The feelings will arise when suffering is encountered if, if there isn't the obstruction of self and self-centeredness. The less concern and attention on self, the more the way is cleared for that compassion just to naturally arise. This is why the Tibetans say compassion is a, a quality 
of awakened mind. It's innate. That is the unmanifest bliss. We just have to remove the obstructions to its arising. And the obstruction is, of course, concern for ourselves. But the attention is taken off self. Suffering arises. Compassion arises. Compassion literally means to suffer with. Compassion is not standing apart and saying, oh, poor person, look how they're suffering. Maybe I can do something to help them. If you really get into it, that's quite arrogant. Mm -hmm. That starts to be like pity. That starts to be the attitude some social workers take to their job, and then they wonder why the recipients of welfare resent them and hate them. They don't realize they're projecting this position of superiority, I've come to help you poor people who are suffering. Compassion means you are free to suffer with. And enlightenment is the end of suffering. It's the end of a personal sense of suffering, that I am a victim in here. But it is not the end of suffering if we mean that complete feeling with other people. So it's not even that I know how you feel. If someone's suffering, I'm suffering. And compassion is the natural response. It arises out of this unmanifest bliss. Again, I'm struggling for an analogy, and the best one I could come up with is the relation of manifest love and compassion to unmanifest bliss is like there are two wonderful moments if you've ever gone to a symphony. And one of the magic moments is you hear the orchestra tuning up, and the audience comes in, they file in, and then they talk and whispering, and then they start to settle down, and then the conductor stands up, and then... No more tuning up. Everybody's ready. And there's this silence that is so beautiful and so pregnant. And then the conductor goes, boom! And then the music arises out of this silence. And there's this fantastic musical dance goes on, you know. And it gets low and quiet sometimes. And sometimes explodes and goes all over the place. It's all happening in that silence. It's not like the silence is gone. But now we're distracted by the dance of the music. And then at the very end again, where it becomes so obvious when the last note of the symphony is played, whatever it is, and everything goes back into the silence for a moment. And they'll be there for a moment. And then, ah, and then the applause comes, you know. But there's that one little space where everybody is so stunned by the beauty and the magic of that silence. They don't know what to do. So it's really like sound and silence unmanifest bliss is like that deep silence that's just always there always there and our feelings of love our feelings of compassion arise out of that and return to that now the last one beauty mm -hmm. again two aspects universal beauty and particular beauty Universal beauty is the beauty of the cosmos as a whole. It relates to the fact that everything is a divine self-disclosure. One part of the cosmos is not more of a divine self-disclosure than another part, and one part isn't more beautiful than another part. And our ideas of beauty and ugliness are, again, projections. It doesn't mean that an enlightened person can't distinguish what people are talking about when they say something is more beautiful than something else. It means that you're not deceived to thinking this is actually true and that underneath that 
there is a commonality of beauty by the sheer fact that it exists, that it arises, by the miracle of creation. The pile of cat shit out there is just as a, a miracle of creation as the sea Buddha that Nurja created on this magnificent quilt uh, work that somebody bought us and gave to us. It's miraculous that anything is here. I mean, every little moment is just a complete miracle. And all our explanations in the world just cover that fact. They're useful, they're helpful, but if we take them to be real, they cover that fact. It's a little bit like going to the movies. If you go to a wonderful movie, because see, some movies are better than others in a relative way, but if you go to a wonderful movie, and maybe there are good people in the movie and there are bad people in the movie, and there's uh, ugly things happen and beautiful things happen, and people do terrible things to each other and they do wonderful things for each other, all in the same movie. And you come away and if it's a really fine movie, you appreciate the beauty of the movie as a whole. You don't want to go back and start cutting out the ugly things or the ugly people or whatever. Do you know what I mean? Leave the theater with an appreciation of the whole movie. It was the perfect movie. I wouldn't have changed a line in that movie. That is seeing the beauty of the whole cosmos. It's also, though, to see the particular beauty of particular things. Each form has its thusness, as the Buddhists would say. Each form itself is a divine self-disclosure, and nothing ever is repeated. They may seem very, very similar, but nothing is ever exactly repeated. I once heard a Zen master give a talk. It was wonderfully started out. He said, do you realize this day is totally unique? It's never been here before, and it'll never come here again. This very moment we're living through. And each little facet and aspect of this moment. And the only way that I know how to talk about it is to talk about the extraordinariness of perfectly ordinary things. How extraordinary to, as the Taoists say, chop wood and carry water. How extraordinary, as the Zen Buddhists say, to eat and sleep. Some artists can make us see the extraordinary of the ordinary very vividly, even under our delusion. I think of uh, uh, Van Gogh's shoes. I don't know what the official title of the painting is. Does anybody know they're, they're a pair of peasant shoes? They're covered with mud and they're coming apart the seams and they would normally be considered ugly shoes, you know? There's something you throw in the trash or take to goodwill or something. But he paints them and you see how extraordinary they are because he can bring that out. That's, everything is like that. It takes a, a genius like Van Gogh normally to get through our delusion. But he's painting the truth. That's not something he's dressed up. And it doesn't have to be extraordinary. And we're, often we're always looking for the extraordinary and we're missing the ordinary. <coughs> because we're always looking for the next moment or the, the next event. The analogy here might be a Japanese painting. These wonderful uh, brush paintings the Japanese do, where a lot of the, it's not a canvas, it's uh, usually rice paper, is left blank. It's just blank. And then a few strokes 
there's a uh, bamboo. Here we go. I'm wearing one. <laughs> All white. And then a few strokes, and there's this horse. <laughs> Beautiful. Now, no blank paper, no brush stroke, no painting. They are inseparable. It's not like the cosmos is beauty as a whole and then each particular thing over here is beautiful. They are as inseparable as the elements in a Japanese painting. And you see, we don't even know blankness until something appears in it. We don't know space until there's a, uh, a brush stroke. Both are totally necessary. Form and formlessness. The unmanifest and the manifest. And our speech divides them. This is why it's so difficult to talk about this. Speech falsifies what's going on. It's useful because I, I can direct your attention to look at something maybe, but then the minute that's happened, throw the speech out, throw the words out, throw the analysis out. A lot of mystical teachings, especially some of the Buddhist teachings, uh, some of the Sufi teachings are very analytical. But it's not to figure out the world. It's to point you in the right direction. And the minute you get there, throw out all of that. Because at that point, it becomes the veil. At that point, it becomes the obstacle. So if you have any questions. Yes. You talk about this sudden moment of enlightenment. And I don't get it. How do you remember? Because I felt that clarity sometimes. And then I just forget again. What is it about? Maybe, maybe I haven't felt the clarity that you talk about. Well, uh, <laughs> if I had, I would be there. <laughs> again, you see this distinction between clarity and unclarity, as though clarity is good and confusion is bad. So you want to get back to that clarity. So you're seeking, right? Mm -hmm. You know, when is this going to happen again? Or how can I get back to that state? Mm -hmm. So this is duality. People on a spiritual path have profound insights and experiences of states, which are terrific. They're very important, you know. But the, the ultimate command is to surrender all grasping and all clinging to any state. Whether you're confused, whether you have clarity, whether you're feeling lots of love and emotion and uh, compassion expansive, or whether you're a dog tired, just want to crawl into bed. Do you know what I mean? Yeah. But is it really like that, that it's ongoing, that once you, you surrender, it continues for the rest of your life? Well, you see here, we were already in trouble with words. <laughs> Whose life? Okay. <laughs> right? And what is the it? There is no it that is ongoing. You see, this is really the secret. We think enlightenment is some it, some place to arrive at, some state. But it is nothing. Literally, it is no thing. It is not a thing. It is to see that there is nothing. Finally, there is nothing to get to, to grab onto, to hold on to. That is the surrender. And then everything is just as it is. Whether you're confused or clear, I get very confused sometimes. Ask Jennifer. And how do you know you're enlightened? I don't. <laughs> <laughs> I'll, I, let me, I, I do have a an analogy that helps this a little bit that I got from Ramana Maharshi. Do you know that you're not a goat? 
Yes. No, no trick question. <laughs> you know you're not a goat, right? Okay. Is it something that you carry around in your mind all the time? Like, I'm not a goat, I'm not a goat? No. No. But you know it all the time, don't you? Yes. Okay. So this is the knowing of enlightenment. It's to know you aren't a thing. You aren't a being. You aren't an entity. You aren't an ego or a person or anything. Just the way you know you're not a goat. The thoughts aren't going on all the time. Oh, you're not a goat. Oh, goody, you see that? Wow, you're not a goat. <laughs> there was that thought that night when I woke up, my God, there's nothing here. There's nobody here. That was a startling you know, thing, and the, and the mind commented on that. But it's not something that's going on, ongoing. But just like you never have any doubts about whether you're a goat or not. It never arises, does it? Right. Well, it never arises to think that I'm anything. What's the difference between that moment of realization and then the ongoing? Like, the moment is separate, because then more moments come and more thoughts may come and attachments to those thoughts, rather than... What I'm picturing you're saying is enlightenment is a sudden release of any attachment to any reality that lasts for the rest of, well, nothing. Well, <laughs> you see, actually, enlightenment is timeless because time itself is a construction of our thoughts. So when you talk about moment and this moment and the next moment, that isn't truly what's going on. And it is a good subject to meditate on. For instance, you can start with a little analysis. Like, where does this moment end and the next moment begin? You were just talking about one moment follows another. You know? So I have a clock here, you see. Oh, it's nice, got a digital thing. So it's going... Uh, 18 seconds, 19 seconds, 20 seconds, 21. Do you see anything actually changing? Do you feel the shift from one moment to another? <laughs> no. I mean, the clock deceives us. The clock is, uh, you know, measuring something, we think. It's not actually measuring anything. It's just doing what it does. So we say, oh, it must be measuring something. There must be time. There must be... <laughs> but truly speaking, nothing is happening, right? In terms of time. You, you can explore this more. You know, where does the past begin? Where does this become the past? Does this slip away? I can see it going. Or can I see the future arriving? I mean, can I see it like over the hill there? Here it comes. In our imagination, we can. We can imagine a future coming, you know, and we do that all the time. And we imagine a past, you know, our memories and stuff, but we're always doing it now. But now, if we don't actually have any line dividing a present from a future or a present from a past, if those distinctions aren't truly real, what does it even mean to talk about a present or a now? You see what I mean? So in a certain sense, yes, enlightenment is a sudden revelation, realization, recognizing something, but it's always been true. In a certain sense, it's retroactive. It's not like, oh, now you arrive and now you're enlightened. Once that happens, you realize there's been nothing but enlightenment, if we want to talk in time, from, from endless beginnings to endless endings. But it has to be realized on all levels. Because right now I can feel like, sure, I know what you're talking about, but is it that I'm not realizing it? That, that I will go out of here and continue to seek? Like, what marks that difference? Yes, when you talk about it happens on all levels, uh, for instance, something that's 
more common perhaps than we think is to have a, a true Gnostic flash. A Gnostic flash is where you really see the truth. You, you really get a glimpse of the truth. <clears throat> but if you haven't done the spiritual work beforehand of really coming, not just an intellectual understanding, but a deeper understanding of the futility of all this grasping and so forth, that conditioning just kicks in and, and fools us again. So this is why spiritual work is very important. There are some teachers around who say, well, just call off the search, you know, and, and you know, don't do any meditation, don't do anything. Great. The trouble is that even if you could call off the search, and that's an interesting paradox right there, who's calling off what search? It presumes an act of will, and that is your very veil that, you, that does anybody to will anything. But even in, in a state like that, even in a teacher's presence where you, know, you can actually have that sort of uh, Gnostic flash, if that work hasn't been done, that conditioning will arise again and you will be deceived again. And it's not a question of will. So actually, I had a rather short path, and I didn't know this was going on at the time. It's only in retrospect. But it was a path about stripping away. It was a path about putting all my eggs into one basket. And when that basket broke, there was nothing left. So one of the ways I like to describe a spiritual path is that it uh, is bound to fail. This is what distinguishes it from any worldly path. Worldly paths promise you success. You know, if you take this course for eight weeks, you'll win friends, influence people, and be able to buy real estate. <laughs> Spiritual path, if you come do this, it'll destroy you. It self-destructs, and it self-destructs in every meaning of self-destruct. Normally, spiritual teachers don't advertise that way because not many people would be attracted. <laughs> but it's true. So the main thing I think maybe it'd be most helpful for you is stop trying to get back to any state. Give all that up. Stop thinking that some clarity state is it. If clarity states happen, wonderful. If you're confused, wonderful. In fact, the Sufis say, this whole path leads to bewilderment. Oh, no. Yes. And <laughs> have you ever read the Tao Te Ching? <laughs> Lao Tzu wrote the Tao Te Ching, the father of Taoism, talks spaces. In worldly uh, pursuits, you learn more and more every day. When you're studying the Tao, you learn less and less until you know nothing at all. <laughs> the Christian mystics talk about entering divine ignorance, become totally ignorant. That's what I was trying to talk about in the first part of here, freedom from knowing, freedom from the idea you could know. So the paradox here is once you accept that you are totally ignorant, that there is no place to be, that is the freedom. There's no state to hang on to. States are ephemeral, like everything else. They're very, very uh, subtle forms, but they're nevertheless forms. All forms are ephemeral. All forms are transitory. What is it about your experience that has never, ever changed? Consciousness. Have you ever had any experience outside of consciousness? I don't know. Well, you couldn't, could you? If there's no awareness of an experience, there's no experience. I mean, your own experience then, not what your mind imagines happens, because you can imagine things happening outside of consciousness, but that imagination is still going on in consciousness, isn't it? But consciousness itself has no form, has no boundaries, no limits, 
Yeah. Where's the? Oh, oh I, that's the end of my consciousness. Stops right here. Mm-hmm. Yeah. Doesn't have any color, taste, smell. It's not this or that. So it's not a thing. So it's the one thing that is always there, but it is not a thing. <laughs> Don't worry about states. States are very, uh, very helpful in a spiritual path. And in clarity states, you have an opportunity for insight to see many things and so forth. But... Uh, don't be don't be practicing in order to get somewhere. Be practicing in order to see something. Anybody else? Um, I like to think that uh, that nobody has a has a grasp or hold on reality. That everybody has, is really operating out of a story. And you can have this story, mm-hmm. or that story, or the other story. That's about that's what you're saying. Mm-hmm. But then you also seem to be saying that. There's a there's a place where you can live that it, that that appreciates the different stories without being lost in any of them. Is that it? Yes, I, and again, we of course always going to be stuck with language. But if I want to be really finicky, there's not any place where you can live. There's no you that's living. But there is a place where stories are appreciated without anybody being lost in them. But on one level, that's another story, too. There's no story here because there's no one to be a story about. So there are many stories. This is the freedom. Since there isn't any particular story, there can be many stories. It's like the screen is, is not the movie. That's why you can run, you know, any number of movies on it. Endless movies on it. And yet the screen is absolutely essential for the movie to manifest. If I don't have a screen, nothing manifests. You know, if I shoot a movie projector up into the night sky, we don't see anything. I need the screen to see. But the screen itself is not a character or an element in the movie. We don't look at the movie normally and say, oh, there's the screen. The screen was not constructed within the movie, the context of the movie. So you're the story, you're the place where the story happens. Well, again, I am not the place where the story happens, but we could say consciousness is the place where the story happens. You with parentheses around it is simply the place where a story happens. Consciousness is the place. That's a good way to put it. Consciousness is the place where the story happens. Now, whose consciousness, you see, everybody thinks, oh, this is my consciousness, but nobody's ever experienced any other consciousness. (laughs) Has anybody ever experienced more than one consciousness? Let's take a poll. I like to do this every once in a while. Has anybody experienced more than one consciousness? Nobody in this room has experienced more than one consciousness. Why do you assume there's more than one consciousness? It's what we all universally know to be the truth. There's only one consciousness. Why do we doubt it? Then the other thing that I know is appearances arise in this consciousness. I can be certain about that. There's no way you can make me doubt that something isn't here. What it is, the status, like is it a dream or is it waking life or, you know, is it a hologram or, I mean, we could think up endless stories about what it is, but the appearance is there and you, you couldn't logically talk me out of the fact that something isn't apparent. Now we're on very solid ground here. The two things we're absolutely certain of. There's consciousness and there's appearances. But you do run into people that seem to operate out of a different consciousness. Well, I run into crazy people. Is that what you're talking about? <laughs> I mean, just 
just in talking with somebody, you'll, sometimes you'll find, often you'll find that their consciousness is just different. Now, maybe it's a different story coming out. But well, I don't say that's the way it is, but I'm saying that's the way it appears. Okay, if you go see a movie, you'll see different characters operating out of different consciousnesses, right? So you're right. In a relative sense, I can distinguish, you know, different characters in the movie. We can go see a movie and we can go have coffee afterwards and analyze the movie up and down. Jennifer and I went to see, uh, what is this, Eyes Wide Shut? And we spent a whole dinner trying to figure out what the hell it was about. <laughs> and what the motivation was. It was kind of interesting conversation. You know, the, the woman was a total mystery to me. I didn't understand why she was doing what she was doing. And the man was sort of... Uh, well, it wasn't so much of a mystery, but she thought he was just a jerk. But <laughs> anyway, you know, we had a good conversation. Those characters are nothing but light. No matter how much we talk about them as though they were real, they can never be anything but light. So, sure, people seem to be coming from a different consciousness. This is the divine self-disclosure that never repeats, that's always endlessly creative. But it is all fundamentally light, like a movie. It's all fundamentally one thing. And we could use that analogy, that light is the light of consciousness, if you like. If we're going to get to the truth that mystics testify to, we have to really get below the level of imagination and thought and stories. They have to see directly. And you don't have to get rid of the mind, but we have to get below that. And then the truth is the truth of the mind itself and the truth of the story and the truth of the imagination and the truth of the movie. Well, why don't we bring the formal part of the morning to a close, and uh, you're welcome to stay and have some goodies there, and as I said before, be careful walking around the buckets and the <laughs> ladder. If you have to use one of the bathrooms, there's a flashlight in it. Uh, if you want to take your food and stuff into the uh, front part of the house and enjoy it there, you're welcome to, or go outside if it's not raining. And if you want to use the library, um, particularly if you're not familiar with it, check with Jennifer and Jean.